Well, a few years ago, um, a movie came out that was by um, one of my favorite directors, Alfonso Cuaron. And he actually um, won uh, the Academy Award Best Director for this movie. Um, it was called Gravity. Um, I don't know if you all saw it. Um, the movie takes place in outer space with two astronauts trying frantically to get back to Earth after a disaster. Uh, and the story is fine, but what really makes this movie great is, is the visuals. You feel like you're hanging above the Earth. It's very unsettling. I'm afraid of heights, and I spent the entire movie sweating. I just couldn't, I'm even right now, I'm like a little bit <laughs> watching the clips. It, it just was unsettling, the magnitude of it. There is something about space, and this movie really portrays it, that, that is just hard to wrap our minds around. It is immense how big space is and all that it represents. When you try to wrap your mind around the universe, it can be daunting, difficult, challenging. When you're swinging around, it's just that much more scary. And really, when you get into studying astronomy, you'll find out that it's not just the visuals, it's just the sheer numbers. If we shined a light at the nearest star, that light would take four years to get there. And there is, in astronomy, things like the existence of dark matter. Dark matter, if you didn't know, about 80% of the universe is made up of a substance that we can't track or see or detect. We know it's there because the universe wouldn't work right if it wasn't there, but we don't know what it is. Most of the universe can't be detected, seen. That's a little bit unsettling, isn't it? <laughs> I think of the universe as this very physical, like, it's here. There's so much we don't know about the universe. If you want to get closer to home, we can talk about the oceans. Oceanographers have this claim that they make. Uh, in a TED Talk recently, Paul Snellgrove, an oceanographer, said this. We know more about the surface of the moon and about Mars than we do about the deep sea floor. Despite the fact that we have yet to ex extract a gram of food, a breath of oxygen, or a drop of water from these bodies. Did you know that? We don't know very much about the ocean floor, like as in our earthly ocean floor. Indeed, the depths of our world and of our universe remain unknown and perhaps unknowable, which itself is kind of unsettling, isn't it? There are things about the world that scientists will just never figure out. We don't always like to focus on this. I know I don't, I know I get nervous <laughs> about focusing on the things that I just can't quite wrap my mind around. And if we do focus on it, it is simply to try to explain it. But sometimes these depths in our world can't quite be explained. There are no easy answers to them. And this is true as much of the world around us as it is of our own lives. We have places within us that are like the depths of the ocean or the depths of space. There are parts of our lives and parts of faith in which we just don't know what's going on. And yet we crave certainty. We would really rather have easy answers than no answers at all sometimes. But in scripture, what we learn is that we are not promised that we will always have the answers. 
And we are certainly not promised that we'll avoid those depths, those places we don't want to go. But what we are promised is that when we find ourselves there, we will also find God there. Which is not a promise for certainty or answers, but it is a reassurance that the Spirit of God goes even to those places where we are uncomfortable or unsure. So with that in mind, I invite you to hear our reading from the eighth chapter of Proverbs. Does not wisdom call, and does not understanding raise her voice? On the heights beside the way at the crossroad, she takes her stand. Beside the gates in front of the town, at the entrance of the portal, she cries out. To you, O people, I cry, and my cry is to all that live. The Lord created me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts long ago. Ages ago, I was set up at the first before the beginning of the earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding with water. Before the mountains had been shaped, before the hills, I was brought forth. When he had not yet made the earth and fields or the world's first bits of soil. When God established the heavens, I was there. When God drew a face, when God drew a circle on the face of the deep. When he made firm the skies above, when he established the fountains of the deep. When he assigned to the sea its limit so that the waters might not transgress his command. When God marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him like a master worker, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world and delighting in the human race. May God bless this reading. Well, the book of Proverbs belongs to a genre in the Bible called wisdom literature. Uh, Generally, wisdom literature, the books are Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Job. And these books are about wisdom. But mind you, that's not our wisdom. These are not books that, that instruct you on how to be wise in an earthly sense or a human sense. Rather, they deal with the deeper questions of life. Questions of existence. What it means to be. To live. And the answers that we get in the Bible are not so much common sense. They don't quite always work the right way that we think they should. So think about the book of Job. We all know the story of Job, right? This guy has a lot of bad things happen to him because the Hasetan, the one who opposes God, comes to God and says, I bet you Job won't, will not follow you if bad things happen to him. And so the question that Job asks us, though, is a question that many of us have asked before. Why do bad things happen to good people? Um, This is a theological question. It's called theodicy. And I'll tell you a quick side story. When I was in divinity school my first semester, there was a class on on theodicy um, that I thought was a class on Homer. Um, It's not the same word. I was like two years into divinity school before I realized that it wasn't the same word. Anyways, T-H-E-O-D-I-C-Y. In this story, though, Job has all these bad things happening to him, and all of his friends have answers as to why. There are common sense responses. Maybe you haven't prayed enough. 
or perhaps you haven't offered the right sacrifices, or maybe you wronged somebody and you just didn't know it. Right? If somebody has something bad happening to them, the first thing we say is, well, what did you do to bring that about on yourself? That is human wisdom. But the answer we get in Job is a different kind of wisdom. You see, when Job finally confronts God, what he gets is a long and lengthy response about God's role in creation, about how massive this work is, and about how beyond human reasoning the work of God is. And in this, we almost hear not so much refuting Job as refuting his friends. So the question, why do, people, why do good people suffer? There isn't a good answer. And in our quest to discover the perfect answer, we can often do more harm by blaming people for their tragedies. That is the answer to theodicy, by the way. Why do bad things happen to good people? They just do. The question isn't why, the question is what do we do about that? And so it's not really a satisfying answer, but it is wisdom. The book of Ecclesiastes, another wisdom book, um, deals with the question of purpose. Why are we here? What is the point of all of this? And if you were in Bible study this last spring, you know that it's not really a satisfying answer in Ecclesiastes. Ecclesi if you're feeling down on life, don't read Ecclesiastes. It is not the pick-me-up book in the Bible. His answer is basically, we are here. There's not really a whole lot of reason to spend too much time mulling over our purposes, and maybe you should just make the most of it. Eat, drink, and be merry. Again, human wisdom might tell us to give our lives to something, to find a greater purpose. Or it might tell us that there's some plan, or what have you, any of these things, right? But the answer for the author of Ecclesiastes is, it might all be meaningless. Vanity, a chasing after wind. You might spend your entire life working for something just to see it dashed. So get ready for it. Again, wisdom. Admittedly, Proverbs reads a little bit more like what we think of wisdom. And yet today we hear this lovely soliloquy by wisdom herself. She was there in the beginning. She was with God when the foundations were laid, when the depths were tamed. And she speaks of the immensity of it all. And perhaps she speaks of a deeper purpose, that it was created out of the love of God. She says, I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world and delighting in the human race. Indeed, there is this hint of purpose in the world, but we probably shouldn't mix up the presence of purpose with our knowledge of it. For while we know that God's presence has been with creation, that wisdom has been present since the beginning, we also know that this creation has happened out of the depths, out of the unknowable parts of the world God has brought into existence creation. And for all of our searching, for understanding, for all of our quest for knowledge, we also have to rest in the understanding and knowledge that there's a limit to what can be known. And then we have to be careful that 
where we choose to speak, we don't cross over into what we don't know. Of course, in our modern or maybe postmodern, depending on who you are, age, we know that the unknowability of the universe is not really an out there dilemma. It's not just the bottom of the ocean or the reaches of space. We don't have to look any further than ourselves to find the depth, do we? Who are we? Why are we here? What are these parts of ourselves that we don't like? What are these parts of ourselves that we don't understand? The habits and thoughts that we have that are harmful? The things that we do and afterwards we have to ask ourselves, why did I do that? You don't get over that when you get to college, by the way. <laughs> I'm 32, I haven't gotten over it. Deep within, our, within ourselves, we have to admit that there is an unknowability, a depth that we can't quite comprehend. We don't know the answers. There's this quote from the book Leaves of Grass by Walt Whitman. He writes, do I contradict myself? Very well then, I contradict myself. I am large. I contain multitudes. As in within us, there are many selves many identities, not all in sync with one another. So we live in a world of doubt, of keeping up appearances, of trying to hold it together, and deep down that doubt persists. Why are we here? Can I be good enough? Am I wasting my life? Am I living the right way? These are all the questions that we just can't know the right answers to completely. They are our depths the unknowable reaches of our soul that cry out. And we find ourselves in this predicament in a world that, if we're honest, struggles with the same questions constantly. What is the point of this? Is this as good as it gets? Are we doomed to repeat the failures of those who came before us? Will the world ever be loving? We can ignore these questions, but they are there. And how many of the world's problems and problems in our own lives are because we avoid these depths or because we try to distract ourselves from them? And so the message of Scripture, perhaps, again, pushing back against the wisdom of our world is not to turn away from the unknowability of creation, nor is it to fill ourselves with certainty, resting on easy answers about why things are the way they are. Rather, the message is that in those places, in the depths themselves, in those places where we just don't know, God is there. God is present. From the very beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, God God's presence hovered over the waters, over the depths, and breathed life into the world. The God of which the Bible speaks is not afraid of those places we can't make sense of. I think this is the key to uncertainties in life. You don't erase doubt with shallow certainties, you don't avoid them with spectacles and distractions. Rather, you learn to be present with those places where we don't have answers. 
and learn to become aware that God is there too. As the psalmist writes, where can I go from your spirit or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. Depending on the translation you read, Sheol is often translated as depths. If I find myself in the depths, you are there. We hear it again in Romans. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Maybe we're too interested in explaining away all the mysteries to notice that God doesn't call us to get it all. Proverbs speaks of wisdom being present with God from the beginning, but it does not speak of our ability to grasp it. And yet we live in a world of needing to at least appear like you have certainty, of having it all together, of needing to perform the right way or present ourselves in the right light. In that world, there is a need for a different kind of of being, an authenticity that doesn't erase discomfort with the world, that doesn't peddle in platitudes and half answers, but rather a way that in the midst of the uncertainty, that we might find a way that remembers that even in those places where we feel lost, and you will feel lost, that God is there too. For us, this is our call, not to explain or know or understand, but to live our lives by the promise of a God whose love will be there wherever there is. And the Trappist monk Thomas Merton once wrote about the call to contemplation, to prayer, and the Christian life as a sitting with anxieties of modern life. In addressing the modern questions of existentialism, he wrote, This is an age that by its very nature, as a time of crisis, of revolution, of struggle, calls for the special searching and questioning for which which are the work of the monk in his meditation and prayer. For the monk searches not only his own heart, he plunges deep into the heart of that work which he remains a part, although he seems to have left. In reality, the monk abandons the world only in order to listen more intently to the deepest and most neglected voices that proceed from its inner depth. Indeed, for Merton, this is the call of the monk, but it could extend to all Christians that we are called to pray out of not only our own uncertainties and doubts, but of the world's as well. And this is the part of a life to which the followers of Jesus are called. How do we grow in our comfort of the depths? How do we avoid erasing people's uncertainty? How do we help lead the world in a way that leads us to be more comfortable with that which we can't know, with the mystery of the universe? For scripture doesn't call us to have all the answers, nor is God afraid of the depths, not even of those we find in our soul. The beauty of the Genesis story is a God who hovers over the depths and doesn't conquer them or beat them or anything else, but rather breathes life into them. 
our questions, our doubts, our darknesses are not rejected by God. And so when we inevitably find ourselves in those places, we will also find God ready to embrace us, to accept us, and perhaps even to create within us new ways of being. This is the message of creation. It is the wisdom that has been there since the beginning. And if we're honest, if we find ourselves in that place again, she will show up again. That wisdom of God that has been there since the beginning, breathing, designing, making, creating. She will keep showing up. Amen.